Well, today we come to question number 28 as we continue our study of the Shorter Catechism. And this is about Christ's exaltation. This question is uh, the last in a series of questions that speak about the work and the offices of Christ, that uh, he was given, the things he was given to do as our Redeemer. We, are, we were introduced to this particular section on the work of Christ in question 23. So let's go back and review that one uh, as we confess these together. Question number 23. What offices doth Christ execute as our Redeemer? Christ is our Redeemer executeth the offices of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king, both in his estate of humiliation and exaltation. After preaching on this general subject, I then preached a sermon on each of the offices. I had a sermon on the prophet, the priest, and the king. Christ is all those. And then last week, we preached on Christ's humiliation. This week, we'll look at his exaltation. G.I. Williamson, in his little commentary on the Shorter Catechism, is a very helpful commentary. He has a picture for us of, um, of stairs with uh, Christ's humiliation as he went from glory and stepped down, 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 and each thing all the way to the death of the cross. And then he's buried in, in the grave. And then he comes back up in his exaltation, back up to the place uh, where that, that is his. Uh, so he has these two sets, and it's, it's helpful for us to think about. We saw the humiliation last time, and now we're doing the exaltation this time. So let's confess together the questions that relate to humiliation and exaltation. From last time, question 27, and then uh, this time, question 28. Okay, question 27. Wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death of the cross, in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. Wherein consists Christ's exaltation? Christ's exaltation consisteth in his rising again from the dead on the third day, in ascending up into heaven, in sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and in coming to judge the world at the last day. Last week, in looking at Christ's humiliation, we read Philippians 2, 1 through 11. I had somebody that was uh, very, very helpfully that often looks at the orders of worship that I sent out, and they asked me, uh, they said, you have Philippians 2 on your scripture reading again. Is that intentional or was that a mistake? Often, this person has said those things to me, and they've been right on. It, it was a mistake, but uh, this time it was intentional. We're going to have the same scripture reading that we had last time because Philippians 2 talks both about Christ's humiliation as well as his exaltation. So it has that staircase that goes down and then back up that we talked about before. So uh, give attention as I, as I read these words to you. They are the very word of God. Philippians 2, and I'll read the first 11 verses. The word of God. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others." Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God, has, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. 
May the Lord bless to us the reading of his word. You can see how verse 7 and 8 show how Christ humbled himself, and then verses 9 through 11 show how he has been and will be yet exalted. And that brings us to the first main point this afternoon, that his exaltation, Christ's reputation, his honor was fully restored. Remember that when we looked at him humbling himself, we saw that he made himself of no reputation. Last week, we saw that the word kenosis is the, in the original means to empty. And Christ emptied himself, not of his deity, that's a heresy called the kenosis heresy, but not of, his, um, not of his deity, but he emptied himself of his reputation. He is God the Son, and as such, he had always properly received the honor and dignity that goes with being God. All the angels worshipped him. That was the environment in which he lived. But when he took to himself a true human nature and appeared to us in the form of a man, he put aside his honor and dignity and was treated as a mere man. And we saw further that he allowed himself to be brought to a very, very low place as a man. Just being a man, living under the law of Moses made for sinners, was a great humiliation for himself on its own. But he also was a poor man from a place that was not an honorable place, Nazareth. But far beyond that, he willingly took responsibility for all of his people's sins and so became a curse for them one that had to bear their reproach. He was delivered to be crucified as the worst of criminals. And while on the cross, he was even cut off from the Father. We can sing Psalm 38 that we sang earlier today in union and communion with Jesus Christ because through his association with us, he bore all of those afflictions. And then to complete his humiliation, he was buried in the ground the ground that he himself made, the ground in which men who are made of the earth and given dominion over the earth at creation go to rot and decay because of their sin. Jesus was put in the ground himself in the tomb. But in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, we're told that his reputation and honor were fully restored. It says that God has highly exalted him And given him the name which is above every name. Now the one name that is above every name that he was given is the name Lord. When used in this when it's used in this sense, as the the Jews use it, it's in the sense that it is in our English Bibles as well. It's a substitute, Lord, as a substitute for the name Yahweh or Jehovah. The Jews substituted the word Lord, Adonai, because they felt that the name Yahweh was too sacred to pronounce. Yahweh is the name that God revealed to his people in the day of Moses, which means I am in the fullest sense of those words. It means that he is the one and only being who is self-existent not created in any way, not evolved or formed out of other things in any way. It refers to the one who has always been and who always will be and who is the creator of whatever else exists. It all came from him. He has all power, wisdom, and even all being in himself. There would be no such thing as being at all without him. He has that from himself, from all eternity. You can see that Jesus is indeed given the name Lord according to verse 11 in the reading that we had, which says that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father, of God the Father. In other words, they will make a formal confession in which they swear an oath that he is Lord. 
which is what we do when we confess the Lord. It's before in a, a vow or an oath kind of formula. Verse 10 makes it clear that every intelligent being will bow as they make this confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. Philippians 2.10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This was consistently the confession that the Jews made who came to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in the first century. Like that was their simple confession that showed that they had received Jesus. They said, he is, Jesus Christ is Lord. They would confess that and then it would distinguish them from the Jews that did not believe in the Messiah. And to this day, the most basic and simple Christian confession is Jesus is Lord. I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now it is true that the word Lord in Greek, kurios, as well as in Hebrew and English, can simply mean sir or master, a title of respect, but something far less than a title for the one who alone is divine. But there are two ways that we can know that here in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, that the word Lord is used to refer to God's divine name, Yahweh. How do we know that? Well, first, because Philippians 2, 9 says that he is given the name that is above every name. And without contradiction, the name that is above every name is this name, Yahweh, the sacred name that God is. Secondly, because Philippians 2, 10 through 11 is an expanded quotation from a verse in the Hebrew Old Testament where the word Yahweh is used. You see, the Jews wrote Yahweh even though they would not pronounce it when they read. They would substitute their word for Lord. So the quote that is in view is in, that Philippians 2 is, uh, quotes is Isaiah 45, which we read early, earlier. In Isaiah 45, verse 20, the Lord calls his people together. And in verse 21, he talks about himself as the only true God and Savior. And then he says, tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Notice who knew what was going to happen and told you what was going to happen before it happened. He says, who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And it's Yahweh there. Remember in your English Bible, when it's all capital letters, it's uh, for Yahweh. And, And he goes on. And there is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Isn't that powerful? None, no other Savior, no other God but me. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. That's the context of the quote in Philippians 2. And then in verse 23, still Isaiah 45, we have the part that Paul does quote from in Philippians, where the Lord goes on to say, verse 23, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall take an oath. In other words, they will confess, as I said before, to take an oath is to confess. And look at what they will say, that Jehovah, Yahweh, is their only Savior. Verse 24, he shall say, surely in the Lord, in Yahweh, I have righteousness and strength. To him men shall come and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against God. In the Lord, Yahweh, all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Isn't it powerful that Paul then imports that, applies it to Jesus Christ, who humbled himself to the point of death on the cross, and then says of him that he is given this name, Yahweh, the very passage that talks about Yahweh being the only Savior and that there is no other. 
It is Jesus Christ. This is one of the most powerful passages setting forth the deity of Jesus Christ that we have in Scripture. You see that Jesus went from laying aside his glory and honor and appearing as a man and nothing more to being given the name above every name. He is after the completion of his saving work once again seen as deity, even though he became flesh. He is given the name Yahweh because though his flesh had a beginning, he himself is the eternal self-existing God of glory. So you see what we have here. We have Christ now as mediator, as mediator, having come in the flesh, now declared to be Yahweh and our Christian confession is that that is who he is when we say Jesus is Lord. We're not just saying he's master. We're saying that he is Yahweh of all, the only Savior. It should be observed that he actually gained something then in his exaltation that he did not have from all eternity. That even as God, something he did not have that he now has. It was not only that his reputation as Yahweh was restored, but he also obtained, and now this is powerful, the ability to save people. He said, how could God not have ability to save people? It's important to understand that he did not have in himself what it took to save sinners. As things were, it was impossible for him to save us without denying himself, denying what he is and what he stands for, and he will never do that. God will never lie, and it would be an eternal lie for him to acquit us when we had not borne the just punishment for our sin. It would be to saying that we are righteous when we are not, in fact, righteousness. God, even God, cannot do that. God cannot lie. It's his virtue that he cannot do that. If he could lie, it would be a defect in God. Our offense of rejecting God as our God was such a great offense that we would have had to be punished forever and ever to make that right. We don't see so clearly from our position as the offenders, but when we see the glory of God, we will see it very clearly. And we already know that it is true from the testimony of God in Holy Scripture. So as things were when Jesus first came into the world, he did not have what he needed in order to save us. He had to do something to obtain what was required for him to save us while yet remaining true to himself, to justify us and yet be just. And of course, the way that Jesus acquired what he needed in order to save us was by offering himself as a sacrifice for sin. Apart from that sacrifice, he didn't have what he needed. To do this, he had to first associate himself fully with us. That's what he did when he became flesh and when he was born under the law of Moses. He was one of the people to whom God as a whole had promised redemption, both to them and through them to the whole world. Until Jesus came, there was no sacrifice to pay the penalty of sin. And so, by associating himself with the people under the law which God gave through Moses, he associated himself with guilty people. That was what set him up for the deeper humiliation. Not only in having become man, which was so much humiliation for him, but now a man headed for the cross on account of our sins that were his sins by imputation. And so he went to the cross as the head of a guilty, condemned people to pay what we would have taken all eternity to pay. And he paid it all, every bit of it. And he arose with eternal salvation for them all and for all who would be added to them from all the different nations. And so in this way, now as mediator, Jesus is not only exalted in that he is again recognized as Yahweh or given the name Yahweh again, but in that now he is given the name Yahweh 
as the mediator who saves sinners. Do you see the difference? He did not have that name as mediator because he was not the mediator until he came to die on the cross for our sins. He is, as it were, exalted above where he was before in a certain way because now he is exalted not only as eternal God, but as the eternal God who has the blessing of the salvation that he purchased as our mediator. Now he has all the honor and glory that is due to one who is so full of kindness, love, self-sacrifice, justice, purity, wisdom, power, and grace. It is our privilege to worship him as Lord. See that you worship him as Lord and as nothing less than Lord. Now let's look at the different stages of Christ's exaltation, coming up from the low place to which he descended. We'll look at each one as they are laid out in the catechism. And with each stage, we'll consider also what it means for us to have a redeemer who is exalted in this way. First, Jesus was exalted in his rising again from the dead on the third day. The resurrection of Jesus shows that his sacrifice for our sins was accepted by the Father. He was crucified, dead, and buried because of our offenses. And he, and he had the, his sacrifice not only accepted for the forgiveness of our sins, he would, if it had not been, he would have never come out of the grave if the Father had not accepted the sacrifice. This is pictured in the Old Testament ceremonies. Do you know how? The high priest went in every year to offer a sin offering for atonement. And when he came out, the people knew that his offering had been accepted according to the ceremonial regulation, that is. What was done in the shadows then in, this old, in these Old Testament ceremonies, Jesus did in spirit and in truth. In other words, he offered the sacrifice that truly takes our sin away. He truly paid the full penalty of our sins. You remember what happened when um, Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, went in to offer, uh, in, to burn incense, even just to burn incense. They didn't even go into the, the holiest place. And they were struck with death because they took incense that God had not appointed. And uh, that was a, it was a serious thing. So when they would go in to offer the atonement, if it wasn't accepted, then they would not live. So when Jesus came forth resurrected, it showed that God accepted his sacrifice. The scripture testifies that because he was raised, we are accepted. In Romans 4.25, some people sometimes wonder, what does this mean? Paul speaks of Jesus as the one who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Jesus was raised because God accepted his sacrifice to justify us. To justify means to make us righteous before God who are not righteous. Okay, So that even though we are sinners, we are counted as righteous. It was by the resurrection that God testified that Christ's sacrifice had been accepted to make us righteous. And that brought honor to Jesus, the honor that he had lost when he went on the cross. And they said, you're a sinner and you're like everybody else. You're God, you come down from the cross. And he didn't. He rather came up from the grave rather than coming down from the cross, which was even better because he descended deeper all the way to the point of death. And then he came up from there. God's acceptance of Christ's sacrifice for us is the basis of our worship under the new covenant. All the ceremonies related to the temple in the Old Testament worship are abolished. Instead of having a priest offering sacrifices and people carrying out all sorts of purification rituals, we have a Savior that we proclaim. We say, this is what he has accomplished for us. In the New Testament, we preach Jesus is the one who is crucified for our sins. And of the Father, we preach the Father's acceptance of that sacrifice. That's what we preach. We praise God in our praises for his grace and for his wonderful works. We also come devoting ourselves to his service and looking for grace through our risen Savior that we might serve him and love one another as he has loved us. Because the resurrection was the official acceptance of Jesus and the whole church that he redeemed, 
the day of worship has changed. That's why it was changed from the seventh day of the week when God created the world to the first day of the week when Jesus rose from the dead. In Hebrews 2, Jesus vows that he will declare God's name to his brethren and worship him in the assembly. He was raised on the first day of the week. He visited his disciples on the first day of the week to declare to them the good news of his resurrection. And he appeared to them again a week later on the first day of the week to declare again his resurrection, Thomas being present then. And as we see in Acts 20, verse 7, the first day of the week was the day that the disciples customarily gathered to break bread. There was a whole new way of worship because now Jesus was risen from the grave and the good news is that we have been justified by his blood. The Father has accepted his offering. So the resurrection is the first stage of his exaltation. What is the second stage? Second, Jesus was exalted in ascending up into heaven. Acts 1, 9 through 11 is the historical account of what happened as we looked at this morning from the earth, or as I described it this morning, we didn't look at this verse, but from the earth's perspective. Jesus was speaking with his disciples, and then we're given this remarkable description. Now, when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, he went up, Behold, two men stood by them in white apparel and also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Can you imagine what it would have been like to have seen this? To have seen this one that they knew and that they walked with on the earth that had now been in the grave and had risen from the grave, now ascending up into the glory cloud? What did, where did Jesus go when he ascended? Well, we're told that he was in heaven, but was it a state or a place? It was a place. It was a place. He went in a body. He has a resurrected human body, and a body must have a place. So he was transported to a place. We have no idea where. But he is in a place. That's why they were able to see his body go up. This is a reversal of what we saw in his humiliation. In his humiliation, he left glory to come and live among men. But in the ascension, he returns to heaven to live in direct communion with God again. This is what he prayed for in John 17, 5, when he said, And now, O Father, Glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Over and over he told his disciples that he was going to the Father. For example, in John 16, 28, he says, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. I go back to the Father, in other words. This is the place of his great delight. Psalm 16, 5 in your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. He loves the Father, and so this is the place where he desires to be. And now remember that he has gone back not as he came exactly. He came as the one who is God that became flesh. Now he has gone back as one who is mediator, who has flesh and who is yet also fully the Son of God. This is all wonderful news for you. Jesus has gone to the Father as our mediator, and he will bring us there also. He is there in flesh, we will go in flesh. He desires for us to see the beautiful harmony that he has always enjoyed with his Father in heaven. And we will see it. John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. That glory has been restored. And he will bring this about. He has promised, as he said to his disciples in John 14, 1-3, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. 
and my father's house are many mansions or dwelling places. But were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So in John 17, he said, Father, I desire this to happen. John 14, he said to his disciples, this will happen. Okay, so communion with the Father is what makes heaven so wonderful. Jesus ought to know because that's the only reason that uh, he, he wants, that, that he delights in, in being there. He also went there to reign as king. This brings us to the third way that Jesus was exalted. Third, Jesus is exalted in sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Peter speaks about Christ's exaltation at Pentecost in Acts 2. It was at the Feast of Pentecost that Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit. And when he did, Peter explains that it was because Christ had been exalted to sit at God's right hand in glory. In Acts 2.33, he says, Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this, which you see in here. You see the connection? Being exalted to the right hand of God, he poured out the Holy Spirit. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit occurred because Jesus had taken his throne in glory at his Father's right hand. And Peter goes on to develop this as he continues saying, for David, King David, did not ascend into heavens, the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. We sang that today, didn't we? Psalm 110. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Notice how Peter says that Jesus was made Lord and Christ in this way. This was his coronation when he was established as Lord. Now, as the son of God, he was always Lord in that sense. But now as a man, He was made Lord after he finished his work and went as our mediator. It was his coronation. This is when he took his seat at the right hand of God to reign as mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ on the throne. As I explained before, he could not take this seat until after he had suffered in our human flesh. It was not his seat until he first did what was required to have a redeemed people He had to have an offering for sin. You can't be a king unless you have people. And he had no people until he could redeem those people. Now, I don't mean to say that the people in the Old Testament weren't also redeemed on the basis of what he was going to do. But what I mean to say is that apart from him doing that, there would have been no, um, he could not have been a redeemer. Okay, so uh, Daniel as we saw this morning, got to see Jesus taking the throne from the heavenly side of the equation. So Peter's talking about what it looked like on earth when Jesus first ascended. The Holy Spirit was poured out. What did it look like in heaven when Jesus went up? Well, Daniel, of course, lived long before Jesus came, but he was able to see it in a prophetic vision that he records that we read this morning. Daniel 7, 13 says, I was watching in the night visions And behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Remember how Jesus ascended into the clouds, what we saw in Acts? Well, Daniel sees it then on the other side. He said he came, he's seeing the place he came. From the earth they saw where he went from. Now, where did he come? He came to the Ancient of Days and they brought him near before him. Then to him, to Jesus, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. So do you see what Jesus is doing in his reign? He is using his dominion, as we saw this morning, to gather his elect from the nations all over the world into his kingdom into the church that he came to establish. His exaltation to the right hand became visible on earth 
in his own generation. Just what we looked at in Mark 13 this morning. There were two things in addition to the signs that were given when the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost that made his exaltation visible on earth. See, it became visible in Pentecost when they had the tongues of fire and all those visible things and the the people speaking in tongues. That made his reign visible. And then you had the people speaking different languages showing the nations would come. But then after that, in 70 AD, there was the destruction of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem by which the Jews were judged for rejecting him as Messiah. He said he would be, appear in the clouds to judge them. So there he is at the right hand of God, showing forth his majesty. And then the second thing he did is that he began to gather people from the nations. Not only was there that exhibition of tongues at the start, but people began to come from all of those nations, not only among the Jews, but people that were actually from those other nations. In these two ways, then, his authority was revealed as the one who is now reigning at God's right hand. This is his power and glory seen in the clouds where he ascended to the glory cloud of God, as Daniel saw in the vision. Now the gathering place for God's elect is no longer Israel at the temple in Jerusalem, Instead, disciples are gathered to Christ from every nation, the four winds, and every place where he is preached as Lord and Savior and where the sacraments are administered in his name. This is good news for you if he is your Savior. Ephesians 1.22 tells us that the Father put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. See, he was exalted to that place. He was given that after he did the work of redemption. King Jesus is the head over all things for the sake of the church. He has authority over angels. He has authority over demons, over the nations, over the very elements of the earth themselves. And he is using that authority to bring his church from where it is to glory. Everything is made subservient to our salvation. God's providence and all the workings are, manuf- are, 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 uh, are, are controlled by Jesus Christ, the sovereign, exalted Lord. The very next verse in Ephesians tells us how he is using his power to save us. Ephesians 2.1 And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. As our exalted prophet at God's right hand, he brings his word to the nations and causes his elect to hear and believe. That's how he gathers them. As our exalted priest at God's right hand, he continually applies his sacrifice to us to take away our sins. He's at God's right hand interceding for us, praying for us, for our forgiveness. As our exalted king at God's right hand, he powerfully releases us from bondage to Satan, to the world and to the flesh, so that we can repent and serve him all the days of our life. We have the one who loved us and gave himself for us, now reigning with unlimited power at the right hand of God's majesty on high. Never despair in your sufferings and persecutions. Jesus is using all things for the sake of his elect. He is using them from the place where he has all dominion in heaven and earth to bring about his gracious purpose for the church. Nothing happens as waste as a waste or in vain whatever it might be. And that brings us to the last stage of his exaltation. Fourth, Jesus will be exalted in coming to judge the world at the last day. The work of judgment is the work of bringing everything to its final proper place where it belongs to go. The righteous whom Christ has redeemed will go to be with Christ in glory which is our appointed home in the new heavens and the new earth. And the wicked will be cast into the lake of fire, including among them the devil and all the angels and the men who are joined with him in his rebellion, as we all once were. In John 5, 22 and verse 27, Jesus explained that the Father has appointed him to do this great work of judgment. He says, for the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. 
Now get this clear. Be clear about this. Jesus as mediator is given the authority to judge. Jesus as mediator is Yahweh who now judges. If you know him as Savior, this is a very comforting thing to hear. The one who is judging the world is the one who came to save you by shedding his blood for you. He is the judge, the one who did that. If you do not know him, this is one of the most disturbing things to hear. If you have been ignorant of God and of his coming judgment, it's time for you to learn of it and repent. As Paul advised the Athenians in Acts 17, 30, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, the man who is exalted. You see, he has given assurance of this by raising him from the dead. We are commanded to preach Christ to all people and to command them to repent and be reconciled to God in view of the coming judgment. Jesus is going to come and sort everything out. This is the highest stage of his exaltation. How his glory is going to be seen in that day. How glorious his salvation and judgment will both be in that day. His judgment will be especially powerful because even those being condemned will know that what he does is right. They will know that the sentence is passed upon them is just. When they see his glory and his righteousness, they will not be able to deny that they have been justly condemned. He will have all the honor that he is not given today when people say we don't even deserve to have a cold or to, to hurt our foot or whatever. We, 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 we completely miss the, the point. How glorious is kingdom in the new heaven and the new earth. This is the highest stage. So share the excitement of the New Testament as we wait for his appearing. The New Testament speaks about the parousia of Christ, which speaks of his coming to be present with us. Just think, he's coming. He comes to, he comes to be with his covenant people forever. This is the essence of the covenant, God with us. He is God with us. See how Paul uses the word parousia in his first epistle to the Thessalonians. He says, 1 Thessalonians 2.19, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his parousia, his coming? Paul can't wait to see the finished product in his ministry. He can't wait to see them there with Christ, reconciled forever. In 1 Thessalonians 3, 12-13, he speaks of how Jesus is preparing us for his parousia. He says, may, that, may, that Lord, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming, parousia, of our Lord Jesus Christ with his saints. You prepare for his coming by learning, Paul says, to love one another. So how's it going for you? How's it going in your home with the people that you are around? Are you doing things that will make you ashamed when he comes? Start loving one another. Start being holy instead. The New Testament speaks of the apocalypsis or revealing of Jesus Christ. The word is used to speak of how Jesus will suddenly appear to stop those who are persecuting his people. Revelation is sometimes called the apocalypse because it's about the coming of Christ to judge. And in Thessalonians, this word is used to describe, describe Christ's sudden appearing to give rest to those who are persecuted. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-8 says, Since it is a righteous thing 
with God to repay the tribulation of those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed, apocalypsis, from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. This will be an amazing thing to see when he visits his judgment upon those who are against his people. He's going to reveal in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel. And then Feneru also speaks of him being revealed as the one who is now hidden. It's used in 1 John 3, 2, which tells us what will happen when we see him. 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, Fenero, we shall see him, for we shall see him as he is. Okay, so he's going to be, his glory will be seen in that last day, that day of judgment. And then the last one is Epiphania, which refers to his glorious resplendent appearing. In 2 Thessalonians 2.8, it is translated brightness. It says, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Can you imagine that? The brightness destroys these enemies. And that's what's going to be the, the epiphany, as it were. In, in, first, in, in Titus 2.13, this appearing is presented as the very thing that we set our sights on to keep us motivated. Titus 2, 11 through 13. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Glorious appearing. That's this word, epiphania. The glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You need to live as those who are getting ready to welcome him. Because he's going to appear in all of this glory that we have seen. He's going to be revealed. It's going to be seen. So you see that the exaltation of Christ will be complete in that day. It's not complete yet. It began with his resurrection when God showed that he accepted his work on the cross for his people's sins. He was vindicated as the one who had pleased God, even though he was cursed. Each Sunday, we gathered to celebrate the resurrection for our justification. His exaltation continues as he reigns from glory at God's right hand, what we focused on this morning. On earth, he, we see his powerful work as the nations enter his kingdom, the elect from every nation. And we see his people sustained by his grace through suffering and persecution as he reigns. But his exaltation will be complete when he returns in glory at the last day with all his holy angels and he gathers the living and the dead before him for judgment. That is the glory that we await when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. They will not be able to help but to confess that he is Lord. They will not be able to do anything else but to confess because this glory that we have talked about is going to shine forth in a way that they can do no other. If you are wise, you will repent of your sin and come to Jesus for salvation and you will yearn for his appearing. No matter what may happen in this present world, it will all contribute to the exaltation of our glorious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Even those who have done wickedly and multiplied wickedness upon wickedness, will, it will bring glory to Him when He judges them as the exalted one. Do you see our nation eroding today? Are you suffering great trials in this world? Serve Jesus 
and all of these with hope because he is going to appear with all his glory and everything will be brought to a completion in him. He knows what he's doing. Please stand and let's pray. O Lord, our God, how excellent is your name in all the earth. O Lord, there is no one like you. You are the one who, who came among us, who became flesh, who dwelt among us. We beheld your glory. And then you went all the way to the shame of the cross and the grave. But we praise you, O Lord, that you did not stay in that grave, that you were raised from the dead, that you showed that what your sacrifice was accepted, that, uh, Father, you showed that you accepted the Son's sacrifice. And then after that, that you went to sit at the right hand. You ascended into heaven. And we praise you that, that you were exalted to, to, to reign there, to gather the nations and to bring judgment on the nations. We praise you that you're working to gather the elect by your, with your power and that you're reigning there doing that. But we praise you above all that you're going to come back again and that you will appear, that you will be seen in that glory that will bring every knee to the ground. Father, we praise you that this will not fail, that there will be no one that is able to stand on that day. They will all bow down before you. Oh Lord, how we exalt you and how we honor you. Oh Father, we see people today bowing down to lesser things. But truly, oh Lord, in that day, we will see your resplendent glory that is like nothing else that we have ever contemplated before. We praise you, Lord, that the very brightness of your coming will itself bring judgment upon those who have been your adversaries. Oh Lord, how we marvel, how we look forward to that day, how we yearn for that day. We pray that we would be prepared for that day, that we would be among those who rejoice when your glory is revealed and not those who run for, to, for cover under the rocks and under the mountains. Oh Lord, truly help us to be your people and to represent you and to live for you in this world, to bear witness to you faithfully. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Grace to you and peace.